Well, burned in my memory, as I'm sure there is in yours, is a trip I had to take that I did not want to make. Uh, I'd spent uh, four weeks in Kenya with uh, two of my colleagues teaching. It meant being away from my family. And that was tolerable, but I had also made a commitment to leave two weeks after I got back to go to Khartoum, Sudan, to teach there for three weeks at a Presbyterian college at a time when Sudan was in a civil war. My wife and children had been with me the first time that we went to Khartoum, and it was the most scar-producing memory in our lives. Scar-producing in a good way, but scar-producing. And now two years later, I was to return to what at that time was one of the most challenging places we had ever been to in our lives, and one to which I did not want to return without the family that I had been with the first time. And it didn't help that at the airport, my 10-year-old daughter handed me an envelope addressed to Daddy as she said goodbye to me. I couldn't even open that envelope until I got to Khartoum. I really, really did not want to make this trip. But God was good and reliable throughout those three weeks. But still, I really did not want to make that trip. And if truth be told, I suspect that Abraham was reluctant to make the trip that God sent him on from his home in Ur of the Chaldees to go to a place he didn't even know. And I suspect that Paul wasn't crazy about being sent to prison from where he wrote this letter to the Philippians. And we know that while praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus did not want to end his three years of ministry on the cross. But if all we talked about this morning was reluctance to go where God sends us and reluctance to do what God wants us to do, we would leave with a perspective that is exactly the opposite of what these three passages are trying to teach us. So we begin. We begin with that Old Testament lesson that was read from Genesis. Genesis 15 is about the goodness and reliability of the covenant-making God who sends us on a mission that we might be tempted not to make. It's about the reliability and the goodness of a covenant-making God who sends us on a mission that we might be tempted not to make. See, in Genesis 12, God did tell Abraham to leave his home, to leave his home uh, to go where God wanted him to reside. It made me remember a, a Benedictine monk one time, an abbot who did a retreat, and over and over again he kept saying, God will get you where he wants you. And that's what God was doing with Abraham. And so here in Genesis 15, he now makes a covenant with Abraham to give him a star-filled sky full of descendants and a future home. A covenant promise that God locks in with a, a strange to us ceremony with fire pots that streak between two halves of animals that have, have been cut, symbolizing what will happen to the one who doesn't keep the covenant. That's what that means. When those fire pots go through, this will happen to you if you don't keep the covenant or if I don't keep it. 
And then as Abraham's story progresses, God tests his confidence, right? Tests his confidence in this covenant-making deity by commanding him to take the life of the one through whom the covenant might be fulfilled. His son Isaac, a test that we are told God will reckon to Abraham as righteousness. But here in Genesis 15, Abraham is going to discover that the God who promises is a God who does miracles in graveyards. He's a God who brings life to barren wombs, just as he will bring life to those in lifeless tombs, as Paul reminds the Philippians. God's going to give Abraham a son. And what God is doing here with Abraham is continuing a salvation program that God began in the third chapter of Genesis when God made a promise to Eve that your seed will crush the serpent's head. And that was reinforced with a rainbow promise to Noah. And it was later ramped up in a promise during the dynasty of King David. But here's the kicker for Abraham at this point. The Bible never says that it is easy to take God's covenantal promises and commands with absolute confidence. I mean, God is serious. God is serious, as is evidenced by that ceremony, that covenant-making ceremony. But taking God's word seriously is risky business. In order to participate in God's covenant promise, Abraham was called to leave the security of his home, to leave his relations, his family, to leave his former gods, and to leave his fields to go to a country inhabited by a people foreign to him. Just as Paul said in our passage from Philippians, that we now live as citizens of a worldly kingdom that is inhabited by minds that are focused solely on the material. It's a dangerous world, sometimes ruled by foxes like Herod. And so sometimes we do wonder, do we really have to make this trip, God? Our trust isn't without moments of fear and doubt. And by the way, the only people who doubt are people who believe. If you don't believe anything, you will never doubt anything. Because the opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is knowledge. And so we're, we have moments of fear and doubt. And sometimes God's promises are so fantastic and impossible that they do cause us to wonder, how can, he, how can God possibly accomplish what God said he will do? Maybe, maybe you've even thought about that in, during your Lenten journey, wondering if you're going to come out at the other end brighter and, and, and healthier, more spiritually alive. But you take the risk because you take God at his word. So I'm suggesting that for Abraham it wasn't any different. I mean, did you, did you listen to the text? Even our text is foreboding. It's, it, it, it kind of, it, it, in the middle of it, it, well, toward the end, it says, At night, a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon Abraham. I mean, can't you just picture him that night when he, he couldn't sleep and he went outside at, that, at the edge of Mitzpah Ramon, which is the largest natural crater in the world? We were out there one time. 
we went out at night and looked up at those stars that Abraham saw, where God told him that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars that he could see in the night sky. Abraham must have been as perplexed as the mother of Jesus was perplexed when she was told she would conceive. After all, how can a man have innumerable descendants when he doesn't even have his own son in his old age? When all that he has is an heir who has been given to him by his handmaid. He must have been filled with some, some doubts right then. And it got even more complicated when God later will command Abraham to kill the promised son. How painful it must have been for Abraham to take God at his word. You know, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said this, There have existed countless generations that knew by heart, word for word, the story of Abraham, but how many lost their sleep over it? If you haven't lost your sleep over that passage at least once, you haven't been listening. <laughs> What Kierkegaard meant was that we're so familiar with this story that we tend to think of Abraham as some sort of block of wood without any feelings when we read it. But what Abraham's story teaches us is to take the covenant-making God seriously, to keep your head up when your enemies surround you, to stand firm in the Lord when you live among enemies of the cross, to go on with kingdom of God life-giving works of exorcisms and healings when the fox Herod is out to kill you. All of it involves painful risk at times. The trip might even end in a Jerusalem where they stone the prophets who dare to speak the word of the Lord. So Abraham had to give up a sure thing in exchange for an uncertain thing. And yet although Abraham is going to make his blunders, we know how the story goes. Through the difficulties, the temptations, the sacrifices, the mistakes, the vision of God's promises remained intact, and Abraham continued to trust a trustworthy God. Just as Paul reminds his people, while Paul is in prison, that our citizenship is in God's realm from which we expect a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as we travel through Lent, expecting a grand celebration of the one who will transform the body of our humiliation into a glorified body like his, such that it is the same covenant promise of this life-giving God that kept Abraham going, that keeps us standing firm in the faith in our God, who is our light, who is our salvation, who is our stronghold, who has the power to subject all things to himself. But the thing is, is if you would rather play it safe, if you would rather you know, sit back in first class as God's train of salvation moves swiftly through the future, through a landscape littered with the forces of evil and death and destruction, if you'd rather maintain the status quo, wait and see how it all turns out before you commit, be certain intellectually you have it all figured out, hedge your bets, try to get through life with a balanced leisure sheet, without too many crises, too many challenges, then your Christian life is going to go stale. It's going to be unused. It's going to be unusable. But if you're willing to join the nomadic Abraham and the imprisoned Paul and the hounded Jesus, then you're going to discover how faithful the covenant 
making God is to show his goodness and reliability to those who wait for it. You and I, you see, we've been baptized into a story. When we were baptized, we were baptized into a story. And as a result, God has called us to be real players in his covenant-keeping, life-restoring work of salvation. In fact, as the Lord's church, we are the central participants in that story with God. As Shmeiman puts it, the one who wrote the quote that we're using during Lent, as Shmeiman puts it, we are on a journey to be transformed into the church of God. Something that is even happening this morning as we left our daily routines on the Lord's day to journey from the old creation into the new creation. In fact, even in our worship this morning, we are rehearsing what it means for Christ to be the power who subjects all things to himself. Now, we're still going to feel the tension, right? We still feel the tension in Lent as we live in these in-between times, between the world that's populated with the enemies of the cross and the final victory of the risen Lord who will once and for all keep the promise that he made way back in Genesis 3.15 about that seed who will crush the serpent's head, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Mary. How we, the church, live out this tension, even, even during Lent, how we live it out in the meantime is crucial. That's what Paul is telling the Philippian church. Those, and those who feel this tension, the disciples of Jesus, they're not satisfied even about how far our walk has gone with God. And as church, we're not satisfied with our love for God and neighbor. I don't know if you noticed, but when we pray our prayer of confession, when we pray, we confess our sins in the morning in this church, we pray it in third-person plural. We've not loved God as we should. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves all the time. So we're people who get involved in this world in this tension to proclaim the gospel never satisfied with how far we are in our journey, but always looking for the revolutionary overthrow of the powers that try to stand in the way of the kingdom's coming. As one little girl rightly put it in Sunday school, the Bible begins with Genesis and it ends with revolution. <laughs> yeah. We Christians, we're to be radical people who turn the world we live in upside down, Acts 17.6. We are Lenten people who judge the present world in the name of a truth which does not yet exist but which is coming from the future because we believe that the reality that we hope for is more genuine and more real than the reality that surrounds us. We are to be bringing the future kingdom realities into the present as an explosive force. And we, we heed the words of the Apostle Paul who warns us. He warns us that there are many out there taking other paths choosing other goals, all who want easy street. But Eugene Peterson paraphrases Paul this way. 
Easy street is a dead-end street. Those who live there make bellies their gods. Belches are their praise. All they can think of is their appetites. But as he goes on, there's far more to life for us. That's what the bright sadness of Lent is all about. As Lenten disciplines reorder our priorities and reorient our perspective in the light of Christ's kingship. Because we are citizens, says Paul, of high heaven. We sang that this morning in Be Thou My Vision. It means formation into a church that acts as a branch office of the coming kingdom of God made up of people who are living a kingdom lifestyle. And even during this coming week, we as church, we're going to go out and we will be stationed by God at kingdom outposts wherever we live, wherever we work, wherever we go to school, like Jesus doing kingdom work, as he said, today and tomorrow and on the third day. We're still going to be church when we leave, doing subversive work for the kingdom of God. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He goes to a cross that over against the Herods of the world will reveal the true nature of power, as Todd was talking about. The universe-altering power of forgiving love that lays down its life for the enemy. The resurrection shattered the lie that we perpetuated for millennia that the nature of power and authority is defined by the Herods who wield the hammer and the nails. I mean, think of it. The one symbol, the cross, the one symbol of ultimate human hatred, the execution of a wrongly convicted criminal, Jesus Christ, is transformed by Jesus Christ into the universal symbol of divine forgiveness. That is power. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer during the Eucharist today, we will once again pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Not asking God to do something in the world for which we're going to be spectators, but asking God to enable us, as God did for Abraham and for Paul, to accept God's will for our lives and for our world and to pay the price for its acceptance and to clear away anything in our life that hinders the acceptance of that will that is to be done. The Lord's Prayer that we pray, you see, it's not a prayer for people who want to remain the way they are during Lenten season. It's a renewal of our confidence that the future ultimately belongs to God and that we in the church are part of its coming because God is changing us. And so today, when we've done our work inside these four walls, praising God and being confronted by his word, we're going to return as church to, to, the, to our neighborhoods, businesses, schools, families, city streets, suburban malls, parks. In other words, we're going to go anywhere the church has dispersed after we ask God to send us into the world to love and serve God and others. And then we go where Christ goes. We go into the blighted and dark places in the world where people are addicted and hurting and diseased and lame and dying, where economic and political systems oppress and enslave people, 
and where social conditions perpetuate racism and classism and sexism. That's where we're going after this worship service. Into those places the church is called to bring the good news of the coming kingdom of God. So church, do we really have to make this trip? Why not? Why not join Abraham and Paul as they follow Christ, the covenant-keeping God, today, tomorrow, and the next day, during a Lenten journey, as we are conformed to the body of his glory by the power that enables him to make all things subject to himself. Toward that end, I want to pray for us. So pray with me as I pray for us. God of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Ruth, Mary, and Paul, you have called us through your Son, Jesus Christ. You lead us on our way by the fiery cloud of your Spirit. We ask you, do we really have to make this trip? We are just beginning to understand what it means to worship and serve you. And then you tell us we have to go. And at times we are not even sure where it is you will lead us. So we will go on the journey with your lead. Help us remember we do not and we cannot go alone. You have made us your friends. And you've made us friends of one another. Help us trust in that friendship. Knowing that we will need it as you encounter us in the unknown. God, it is exhilarating to be your people. We praise you for giving us such wonderful work.